The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. We have made our way finally to the third chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 3. The text before us today is not an easy one to wrestle with, but a critical piece in the puzzle that Paul is building to understand his argument that everyone needs a Savior and there's only one Savior, that everyone must be justified before a just God and there's only one way to do that. Let's set these verses in our minds, follow along as I read the first eight, Romans chapter three. Paul says, What advantage has the Jew? What benefit of the circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Interesting set of texts, isn't it? Interesting set of verses. We have to step back and say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the first and most important theological crisis faced by the church was to settle the relationship between the Old and New Covenant. I was listening in on uh, Dr. Opie this morning talking in our Sunday school hour about this collision that was happening in the book of Acts between Christians and Jews. What was the, the, the Old Testament saint, the person under the Old Covenant, to do with this crucified Messiah? What were Christians to do with Jews? What relationship does Judaism have with Christianity? It's not a stretch to say that the entire book of Acts really chronicles that question. What's the relationship with Judaism, the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, the Gospel, and the New Testament? Ultimately, a church council was formed. Turn over for a moment to Acts chapter 15. I want you to see this. This was the critical question that the early believers were asking. You'll remember that Jews were being converted to their their Messiah. There there were Gentiles being converted to the truth of the gospel. And then we finally have this collision. You know, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a Gentile, is saved. Uh, Peter has a vision where a sheet is dropped down, he's told to eat unclean animals and said that there is no longer any clean and unclean, not only dietarily, but with respect to God's covenant. Gentiles kept being saved. 
That irritated the Jews that were saved. Wasn't this their Messiah? How are we to work this out? Well, listen to Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's the problem. The Old Testament Jews, the Old Covenant Jews who were alive at the time of Christ, alive during the time of Acts, alive at the time of the writing of Romans, were saying, yes, you can become a Christian, but remember, to become a Christian to these new Jewish Christians was to become a Jew in a real way. They were combining Judaism and specifically the external uh, manifestation of surgery, of circumcision, with true and living faith. Paul addresses that in the entire chapter of Romans 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. We don't get it, Paul. You're saying that the Gentiles and the Jews are equal before the gospel, equal before God, equal before those who've expressed faith in Christ? Let's talk about this. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all brethren. They were just amazed. God's saving Gentiles. The Old Testament God is interested in saving Gentiles with the Messiah through the gospel of the Messiah. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, this is critical. This has to be understood as the mindset of the New Testament Jewish Christian who's being written to in the book of Romans. This is the mindset. The apostles and elders came together to look into the matter. And after uh, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, referencing his two sermons early in Acts. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts. How? By faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which is neither of our fathers nor have we been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. There is the debate. Peter nailed it and got it right here. He had some struggles in Galatia as we talked about a few weeks ago. Here he got it right. One way to be saved, only through Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. This should have been a clear echo from what was going on since the beginning of Jesus' life. You don't need to turn there, but you'll, you'll remember what Simeon said when he held baby Jesus in his arms. He said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant, Luke chapter 2, verse 29, to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, listen, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. When Jesus was still an infant, 
Simeon understood this was the only savior for all men, the only way to be right with God, the only way to be just before God, the only way to be saved. From the very beginning that was the case, yet the Jewish mindset was so embedded and so ingrained in what was happening in Acts 15. Let's circumcise them and get them to obey the law of Moses. Let's move them back to the old covenant, not understand the new promise, the new covenant. Why? The idea of a crucified Messiah was way outside the expectation set of these believers. A crucified Messiah? Wasn't this the one who's going to rule and reign and set the rights of the, of the world, uh, uh, set the wrongs of the world right? Wasn't this the one who was going to make the lamb and the lion lie together? Wasn't this the one who was going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and give peace? What is this? A crucified man alongside two criminals? Well, they didn't know that there was going to be a time when he gave leadership and rule through hearts in the church, and that all those promises would indeed be fulfilled every single one down to the specific real estate that he chose in a millennial kingdom. Paul's been talking to the Jews and the Gentiles in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he said, the gospel is glorious. In the last half of chapter 1, he said, the gospel is glorious because it saves wicked Gentile sinners, and he went into graphic descriptions to talk about them. In chapter 2, he says, Now, Jew, don't think that you are any better off than them just because you're Jewish. You are equally as sinful and depraved before God, and you need a Savior too. This is where we find ourselves in chapter 3. The Romans, the Roman church was a cosmopolitan group. The church would have included both converted Jews and Gentiles. And it's important to understand that Paul, as he deals with the Jewish objections to the gospel, that's what we're going to be looking at today, is probably not just making this up rhetorically. These were probably the issues with which Paul wrestled when he came to Christ as well. Paul was Jewish. Unless you look through the book of Romans and think, think, wow, what an anti-Semitic book this is, remember that Paul was a Jew and so is Jesus. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I rejoice in the Lord throughout the same things again. There's no trouble. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the workers. Beware of the false circumcision. As he said in chapter 2, those who've been had surgery externally in the body, but do not, have uncir- do not have circumcised hearts. For we are the true circumcision who worship spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Although, and then he says this, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which was in the law, found blameless. Who says that? But whatever things that were gained to me, those things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ. Paul had credibility to criticize a Jewish objector to the gospel. He had been one. He was a persecutor. 
Here's the key problem that Paul corrects in Romans and Galatians. The Jews had, and can we say this? The Jews still have pretension, this idea that righteousness, that their salvation is derived from the fact that God favors them and they have the law. Problem was that they were convinced that mere possession of the law was enough, not practicing the law. That's what chapter 2 concluded. So the new covenant, the gospel, radically reinterprets, radically redefines what it means to be a true Jew. That's what he described in the last few verses, last two verses of chapter 2. He is a true Jew who is one inwardly. Here's the crux of the argument. A Jew's race and ancestral religion cannot save him. That's the problem of the Jewish perspective. It always has been, and until he returns, it always will be. Jews have always had a difficulty seeing themselves, here's the problem, as sinners in need of a Savior in the same way that Gentiles are sinners in need of a Savior. So what Paul does in these first eight verses is he takes on the role of the objector. He answers the Jewish objectors to the gospel. Not only does he anticipate what objections there would be, he no doubt had these objections. So as we look at this text, I want to discover with you four questions from Jewish objectors to the gospel. This could prove very helpful uh, hearing Paul's words to even evangelism to a Jew today. Jewish objections to the gospel, four questions from these Jewish objectors to the gospel that Paul will answer. The first one is in verses 1 and 2. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? I mean, think about this. It's a great question. It's the right question. If he saves Jews and Gentiles alike, if he has no distinction, as Ephesians tells us, what good is it? What good is it to being a Jew? Look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? He just said in the last two verses of chapter 2, it's not he who is a Jew who is one outwardly who's had the surgery of circumcision. It's he who is a Jew who is one inwardly who truly worships in spirit and truth. Then Paul anticipates, then what advantage is it of being Jewish by race, by covenant? What benefit is the circumcision? Well, these first eight verses of chapter 3, in the first eight verses of chapter 2, rather, excuse me, of chapter 3, Paul has this imaginary objector in his mind who I think probably was a real objector in his own heart. It's like this Jew interrupts him and says, hang on. If it's only being a Jew outwardly, inwardly rather, in the circumcision of your heart that matters, and God has an interest in saving Gentiles, is there any advantage to being Jewish at all? Any advantage to belonging to the nation of Israel? Any advantage to being circumcised outwardly? Now here's where the passage gets really interesting. Because if you're a Gentile and you're reading Romans or you're hearing it for the first time, you would expect Paul to say what? Actually, no, there's not. No advantage at all. He saves the one like the other. We would have expected Paul to say there's fundamentally nothing special about being a Jew outwardly. Isn't that the easy reference from what we studied in chapter 2? However, much to our surprise and no doubt to theirs, Paul says, actually, there is a great advantage to being a member of the circumcised nation. His answer, verse 2, great in every respect. 
overwhelmingly advantageous. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, you have to understand this in the context that Paul began back in chapter 1, verse 1. What was the advantage of being a Jew? First and foremost, Paul says, you were given the law, you were given the scriptures, you were given the Torah. But isn't that what he criticized them for? Look, you haven't, you didn't do it. Was this really obedience? No, no. To understand this, go back to chapter 1 and look at what he says. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, where? In the Holy Scriptures, in the oracles of God. Concerning what? His son who is born as a descendant of who? David. According to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says the great advantage what should have been the great advantage of being Jewish is you were given the oracles of God, you were given the very written word of God, you were given the very voice of God that ultimately gave you every reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Your great advantage was to understand what you didn't understand. Jesus is the Messiah. That was the advantage. You were given the scriptures that prove he's the Messiah. They pointed back They pointed to the promised Messiah. So what do we say then? Jews blew it. They were disobedient. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they lost. Gentiles win. Can I give you a little preview of what Paul is going to explain for three chapters beginning in chapter 9? But listen to what he says specifically in Romans 11. I say then... God has not rejected his people, the Jews, has he? Then he says, may it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of David, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If he elected Israel, he'll bring that to fulfillment, just as he elects a believer and will bring that to fulfillment. God will fulfill his promises to Israel, geographically, nationally. Those who don't believe that really have a struggle in Romans 9 through 11. And Paul's going to say, he's not done with Israel, but right now, Israel's under a curse. Remember Jesus? cursed the fig tree, said, this is the nation. One day he will come and pull them together as a mother hen brings her chicks. But for now, they stand as those who have rejected the Messiah, who will one day look back at the one they pierced, and it'll all make sense. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Why? Because you have the greatest insight into the Old Testament, which proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. That's the point. A second objection, second question is this. Well, then is God still bound to his old covenant promises? I mean, if this is the new covenant, if this is the gospel, Jesus says this is the new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper, if this is the new 
What about the old? Is he still bound to that in any way? Paul says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it now? Now we find the problem. The question we're left with at the end of chapter 2 is this. If the Jews have been unfaithful with the law, the oracles of God, then they have forfeited all their privileges of God's people, right? They blew it. I have a dear friend of mine who told me one time, the Jews had their chance and they blew it. Now it's given to the Gentiles, to the Christians. Paul says, really, actually, that raises a question of God's faithfulness. If God said, I will give you Abraham and your descendants this real estate in this land, if God said, I will send the Messiah to rule from a literal place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, if God said the borders will be X, Y, and Z from here to there, was he just kidding? Was that just false? Was that just false hope? Or was it, as my friend says, well, the, that would have happened if the Jews had accepted Jesus and received him as Messiah, but since they didn't, he turned his back on that covenant. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No, no, no. If some did not believe, if some did not believe, the issue is not the faithfulness of God, but those who didn't believe in the faithfulness of God. He says, no, God is not unfaithful. His faithfulness to the Jews has not been nullified. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he still remains what? Faithful. God's trueness, God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness, his covenant fidelity is not dependent on man. The unbelief of the Jews caused a dilemma. Unbelief, what, by the way, in what? Unbelief in what? Well, to their own scriptures, as we said, that the oracles of God had pointed to Jesus Christ. This will make full sense when we get into chapter 4. This unbelief was in the scriptures that should have told them that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the point of all Romans. He accuses the unbelieving Jews with the rejection of the very oracles they prodded themselves with because they didn't believe, the logical and biblical conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that the gospel is true. He goes on, verse 4, May it never be, may it never be that God's proven unfaithful, that he's finished with his covenant. Rather, let God be found true, and you let every man be a liar. If there is no faith on the earth, God is still faithful. As it is written... You may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is saying that the unbelief of some of the Jews does not invalidate God's covenant faithfulness to them, nor does it negate the advantage of the Jew over the Gentile. God will be found true even if every man is found to be a liar. Man, here the Jews, man's sinfulness does not impact the faithfulness of God. If you hear nothing else today, that's good news you can tuck yourself into bed with. Your, their, anyone's unfaithfulness doesn't make God say, whoops, I shouldn't have made that promise. And before you throw all these Jews under the bus and say, those rascal Jews, they had the scriptures, they should have known. Really, do you have the scriptures? How accountable are we? Are we those possessors who are not 
practicers. To reinforce his argument, he alludes to Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What are you talking about here? He's basically saying God is justified in every judgment he makes because he is faithful and man is fundamentally unfaithful. No one, if we go back to chapter 2, verse 1, no one, Jew, Gentile, righteous, unrighteous, nice, mean, will ever be able to stand before God and say, now now hang on, what about, and have an excuse. God will be justified in his words. God will prevail when he judges. He brings up a third question from these Jewish objectors. Well, then hang on a second, and you've got to follow the logic. If that's the case, is God actually fair in judging sinners for sin? Now, you've got to hang on tight because this argument gets really fast through here. Is God fair in judging sinners for sin? Verse 5, but if our, notice he says our, he jumps from talking about those Jews to our. Is he talking about our because he's Jewish or our because we're all sinners? I think both. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then he just kind of, he says, this is, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm speaking in human terms. Paul introduces the subject that he'll return to in chapters 5 and 6. Namely, the backbone issue in the book of Romans. What is it? The righteousness of God. God is righteous Man is unrighteous. That's a problem the gospel answers. To really understand that God forgives sin, to really understand that God forgives unfaithfulness of both Jews and Gentiles could, could, listen, lead to the doctrinal error called antinomianism. No, anti-nomianism. Nomos is the Greek word for law. No law. No obedience. Libertinism. You can just do whatever you want. Here's the thought. If God has proven gracious and righteous in forgiving sinners by the death of his son, which is the whole point of the book of Romans, then wouldn't it follow that the more unrighteous we are, the more he would show more of his righteousness and grace by forgiving us? So wouldn't it make sense to show great forgiveness and great grace, we should live in great sin? Further, if God's forgiving of sin demonstrates his righteousness, then isn't the whole thing a sham since the more we sin, the more he forgives and the better he looks by the worse we look? That's exactly what Paul is putting uh, answering because that was what the Jews were saying. Hang on, if it doesn't matter, if it doesn't, if God's righteous, He forgives sinners. Then psh, I'll sin them more so that He can get more glory. How then can we be held accountable for our sin if God is glorified by forgiving us of sin? I love how F.F. F. Bruce puts it. He says, "Someone may say, if my faithlessness sets God's faithfulness." In bolder relief, if my unrighteousness establishes his righteousness, 
Why should he find fault with me? He is really the big gainer by my sin. Why should he exact retribution for it? Do you see the argument? If you think he's done with this, he makes it really clear. Look over chapter 6. He'll continue this line of thinking. And after talking about God's grace so strongly in chapter 5, this is the conclusion. What shall we say then, chapter 6? What shall we say then after looking at God's grace? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Same question. May it never be how shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see the argument? If God's righteousness is demonstrating and forgiving unrighteousness, then it follows the more unrighteous I am, the more glorified he is in forgiving. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. May it never be. Verse 6 says, otherwise, how will God judge the world? How could he be just in judging people for sin when he knows that their sin is what makes him look best by forgiving it? Anyone who would have studied the law and followed the book of Moses, as Acts 15 tells us, would have easily made this sarcastic accusation. Paul's embarrassed by it. He says, ah, talking like a man. Talking, this is just, I can't even articulate this in theological terms because there's no theological category for that kind of thinking. Which leads him to a final question to answer. The Jewish objectors before the gospel. Then hang on. Is greater good accomplished by forgiving greater sin? It follows right after that. Is greater good accomplished by forgiving greater sin? He goes on in verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, wow, have I seen commentators run with that. Some uh, Jewish commentators looking in the New Testament say, see, Paul even, Paul even admits to being a liar. We shouldn't believe anything he says. Come on, let's listen to the argument. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also still being judged as a sinner? What does that mean? Well, follow this. Now we find out that this argument, this issue is very personal with Paul. When he refers to his lie, he's not saying that he had lied. He's alluding to the accusation that the Jews were making of him, calling him a liar. He's just being sarcastic, spiritually and sanctified sarcastic, but being sarcastic nonetheless. You think I'm lying? You think I'm saying that God's going to be faithful to his covenant and also save sinners who are Gentiles? You think I'm making this up? This is all a big sham? The lie they were accusing him of was simply this, that a sinner, get this, This was their big accusation that Paul said and taught that a sinner can be forgiven and God will still remain righteous. You say, I'm still a little iffy on that. Hold on till we get to chapter 3, verse 21 and following, and it will make even less sense to you. You know why? He's going to say, not only does God do that, that, he does it by, drumroll, believing. Wait, wait a minute, Paul. We're getting ahead, but the objection is, wait a minute, God will be righteous, God will judge unrighteousness by the death of his son, and how do we accomplish that? By doing better, trying harder, being good? No, by faith. To as many as believed 
He gave the right to become children of God. The Scottish commentator F.E. Stalin says this, If Paul was being judged by the Jews as a sinner, they had to take their argument through to its logical conclusion and answer Paul's question that if his falsehood enhanced the glory of God, why were they judging him as a sinner? What he's basically saying is if you take that to its logical extreme, then nobody's culpable before God. Sin all you want. So we come to verse 8. Then why not say, now, here we go. Now we find what we should have started at verse 8 and then come back. Now we find what they were saying. As some slanderously reported and some claim that we say, why not say, let us do evil that good may come. I mean, isn't that the logical conclusion? If God gets glory by forgiving sinners, then the greater sinner I am, the greater glory he gets, I might as well sin as much as I can. He will take the next three and a half chapters to say that cannot be the case. Ultimately answering in chapter 6, you're either a slave to unrighteousness or you're a slave to righteousness because of faith. This is the crux of the matter. Paul indicates that he's answering slanderous accusations made by Jews. That they had been spreading the word that Paul was teaching evil should be practiced. Sin should be accomplished and pursued in order to advance good. Those antinomianists, those libertines, by the way, still exist today. It's called non-lordship salvation. I was reading recently where a man, um, I have a book in my library where a man says, God is faith." even if we're faithless, and took that to mean even if a person becomes an atheist, God will still save them. Problem is you're not reading what came before and after those verses on God's faithfulness. Nothing could be farther from the apostle's mind. The goal of these objections by this Jewish questioner, and I think even by Paul internally looking back at his history himself, The goal was to discredit Paul. They were not so much libertines as they were accusing Paul of being a libertine. You're teaching, think about what they're they're saying. You're teaching that God forgives great sins so that you can sin. How convenient. But as we looked ahead in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, what does he say? Should we sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? We'll get there when we get to chapter 6. So, chapter 2 provides a thorough attack on the sufficiency of the old covenant to save. The Jews were only Jewish outwardly. The Jews who were only Jews outwardly by surgery, by circumcision, were possessors of the law instead of being practitioners of the law. That was a problem. They were equally as culpable for God's wrath as the Gentiles. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse before God's judgment. Paul's building the case. Brick by brick. Very simply this. Everyone needs a Savior. And there's only one 
And the oracles of God in the Old Testament prove beyond mathematical improbability that it is Jesus Christ, the one born in Nazareth. So this passage helps us to avoid a major theological error. We may not be Jews, but we can see an error here that's really easy to fall into. It's all about justification. Beginning next week and for the next few months, we'll study justification. Justification by faith, being just before God by simply believing. It's, it's supposed to land on our ears as too good to be true, too simple. There has to be more to it than that. So Paul takes great pains to explain. That's the point. That's all there is. The Catholic formulation of justification is this. Now, listen very carefully. It's easy to get tripped on this. We're going to talk about this over and over in the coming few months. Catholic formulation of justification is this. Faith plus good works, that equals justification. You have faith and good works, that will get you justification. The Protestant formulation is this. Faith equals justification and good works. Faith gives us justification and good works follow. Not to get us faith as a consequence of faith. We know that, but let me tell you one error that we need to talk more about that Paul is addressing here, and we'll come back to this in chapter 6. The error Paul is addressing is this. The error that says faith equals justification minus good works. Meaning that your life after salvation doesn't have to be any different. The entire chapter of 6, Romans 6, debunks that and says, no, no, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The person who says, I've come to know God, I've come to know Christ, I've come to believe in the gospel, but does not have any passion to do what the word of God says, may say they're a believer, but will one day get to the judgment. Matthew 7, say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, depart, I never knew you, you workers of unrighteousness. What's the takeaway for us? How shall we who died to sin still what? Live in it. You know what else? It's to be uncomfortable, to be shocked, to be uneasy with how easy it is to be a Christian. It's okay to say, wow, this is, seems really simple. This is, there's got to be more to it than this. The point of Romans is, no, there actually isn't. You believe. Now, as we'll find out in Romans 9, you would never believe unless God had given you that faith to believe. And as we'll find out in Romans 6, you would never believe unless God had given you the grace to sanctify you, not just justify you. For the Jews to conclude this, and if I can steal from where we're going to go in chapter 6. And for someone to conclude, I mean, you have to give some grace and give some understanding to those folks in Romans 6. Paul has preached justification by faith since chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5. That God 
God grants righteousness by belief. How can I become perfect before God? Believe in his son. No, no, no. How can I be perfect before God? Have faith in his son. No, no, you don't understand. How can I be right before God? You believe in Jesus Christ. There's got to be more. No, it's free grace. That's what makes grace grace. And so they were rightfully concluding, wow, if God forgives that much, I can sin all I want because God's a forgiving God. What a God. He says, "Mm, wrong conclusion. May never be. My question is, do we ever get to the end of Romans 5? Do we ever get so overwhelmed with God's grace, his forgiveness, that we would even conclude it doesn't matter how we live? The conclusion is wrong. The feeling of being overwhelmed with God's grace, that's a good feeling. That's the right conclusion. Obedience doesn't make you saved. It proves you're saved. It's all because we've experienced what Paul describes in Romans 1 and 2 as kind grace, unending mercy, transferred righteousness into our account, exported sin on Christ's account of the cross. And that faith is how we obtain it. Are you amazed that we can be justified by merely believing? The Jews were. We ought to be all the more. Father, we are very understanding of these Jewish objectors who are trying to reconcile and rationalize the coordinating relationship between Old Covenant and New Covenant. We understand that the reason we understand is because of you. The end of this passage concludes, Father, by saying that their condemnation is just, and that's where we conclude as well. Those who believe that sin advances good, that sin can bring about glory by the mere pursuit of sin, are adulterating your word, abrogating the gospel, dismissing the blood of Christ, trampling it underfoot as not precious. And yet we understand that we are not dissimilar from these Jews. We have the full oracles of you. We have your full word. We have promises beyond number. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear what you say so that we would never think that sinning more brings you glory. Instead, that becoming like your son holy and sanctified, adorns the gospel. Lord, I am mindful that there are, there's a great possibility that someone is in this room who has not received by faith your son. Lord, convict them that 
Their condemnation is just because of what they've done, but their salvation has been accomplished by what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.